the number one issue that medical spas have is actually they get ridden up for sharps training. Yes. I've seen that the OSHA, which sharps would fall under the OSHA compliance, they have the highest fines. Like I've seen fines anywhere from two to five to $7,000. And so it can be pretty hefty. How do we as medical professionals create the life of our dreams and still impact the lives of our patients? My name is Dr. Adam Sewell, and I'm here to show you how to break free of the traditional healthcare system that has you overworked and underpaid. If you're ready to join us, visit freedomthroughprosperity.com. But for now, let's get into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Medical Entrepreneur Podcast. We're so glad to have you today with a special guest. Amber Bechtold, who is here, and she is an expert on compliance and making sure that you are in your legal zone, making sure that everything is correct. Amber, could you tell us a bit more about what you do and and how you help medical entrepreneurs with their practices? I typically have people that come to me needing compliance. They know somewhat of, you know, hey, I need this in my office. So what I started off doing was guiding them and telling them what they needed. And then I quickly found out that it's not all in one place for you to go find out there in print, unfortunately. So I made it a point to actually build compliance out. So I make the actual binders, build them out and um, deliver it to, to my clients. I walk them through it and help them understand like, what is their medical director's responsibility? What is their responsibility? Do you focus on uh, kind of medical spas or do you focus on all practices? I primarily focus on on doing medical spas. Um, I have had some dermatology offices that I've worked with as well as plastic surgeon's office, but everything, but they have the aesthetic component in their office. And so that's typically what I help with. You know, for a lot of us that are medical entrepreneurs, we, we get out, we're practicing, we think we kind of have things set up. But it's not very clear on the guidance or even like the state statutes are sometimes confusing. I know that I've talked to attorneys before and one attorney will say one thing, another attorney will say a different thing. And it seems like it's kind of like a gray area. What have you kind of found? There's definitely that, you know, those areas that are gray. And that's when I turn to my legal help and, you know, have them, you know, interpret and clarify things for me. So Yeah, it's definitely not clear. Another reason why I wanted to offer this as a service. There are some, you know, consultants out there that definitely offer compliance. My specialty is again built actually building these binders out um, and not giving you a do-it-yourself project because you start, you know, searching and you know, looking on, you've got your governing entity. So you've got the Texas Medical Board website, you've got um the TDLR website, if you're doing lasers and esthetician services, and then you have your OSHA, your HIPAA that you have to be compliant with. And so again, it's just not all in one place. So not everybody knows that they have some idea of like, oh, I know I need to be, you know, OSHA OSHA certified. I know there's probably needs to be some component of HIPAA, but they just don't understand to what degree that these things need to be in their binders in office. Absolutely. I know it's very confusing and like, I, I saw a statistic this some the other day that was said like the number one issue that medical spas have is actually they get ridden up for sharps training. It's like their the primary primary problem. Yes. And what I've seen and read, I use AMSPA for a lot of what I, you know, kind of keep up with. It's kind of the hub for med spas and information. So 
I've seen that the OSHA, which Sharps would fall under the OSHA um, compliance, they have the highest fines. Like I've seen um, in stories, fines anywhere from two to five to seven thousand dollars, and so it can be they can be pretty hefty. Wow. And then you go back to kind of Texas Medical Board and TDLR. I haven't seen fines, you know, that high. So not to say that you know that it could never happen, but I just have not I've not seen those cases yet. Man. And so you feel that uh, for the average, you know, medical entrepreneur that they're kind of doing their own practice or starting their own med spa, something like this, what would be your advice to them in terms of, you know, kind of like staying legal, making sure that they're on the right side of the law? So definitely um, consulting with somebody that is very familiar with compliance in their state. Um, every state is obviously going to be different. Um, I focus on Texas. And so I've made it just a point to, you know, know as much as I can. And so that way, when my clients come to me, you know, and have questions, I'm able to answer those. But I would definitely say, focus on getting your compliance in place. They are actual physical binders that need to be in your office. There's, you know, they need to be in a centralized location. And then, you know, going back to like the medical director, the responsibilities, you know, you've got to know um, what they're coming in for and what they're signing off on, because then you go into the component of not all medical directors know the responsibilities. Cause again, it's not just all in one place for them to, to find out like, Hey, these are my responsibilities and it's just outlined. So you're pulling from different governing entities to, to combine that information so that your spot can be compliant. Boy, that seems to be so true. I find that the medical directors are kind of like, some are either involved in the practice cause they're, they're working there or the practice is like, you know, part of their, like maybe they have like a nurse practitioner doing injections and they might be an OB-GYN. So they're in the same office. But it does seem that for a lot of people, their medical director um, is, is, you know, kind of not present. And many times they just come in, you know, once a month, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, does that put a lot of burden onto the actual practitioner themselves to make sure everything is documented and et cetera? So I think it's important. And what I really um, kind of focus on when I do provide compliance to a client, I want them to understand you know, you're just as much res as responsible as, you know, the medical director is because most of these medical directors, like you said, they come in once a month or even if that, you know, we can kind of talk about a case that was just recent in the, in Frisco where a provider was providing IV to a patient and the patient passed away. So that situation, the story um, stated that the medical director had actually never been in and medical directors are supposed to be doing M&M's monthly meetings with the mid-levels. And so those things are supposed to be happening to prevent this. But in this case, the provider was an esthetician. She was not IV certified. She shouldn't have been doing this. She didn't have standing orders in place to be doing it. And so it was a very unfortunate situation. But again, why it's important to have compliance in place. Well, wow, that's really scary even for the medical director as well, because, you know, they didn't even have any orders, but it sounds like this esthetician thought that she's going to do IV services. And then uh, when I read about that article, it was really horrible. They basically yeah. tried to infuse TPN or total parenteral nutrition, which is what you might use in like a patient in the ICU or something who can't eat, you know? And I, I remember doing orders like that in my training and like, we'd have to spend so much time calculating, you know, what's the level of calcium, level of phosphorus, you know? And I just think, you know, here's a, a lady who probably doesn't even have any idea what that is, infusing that in someone's IV. And that's what I right. guess killed the patient. It's really horrible. I know. Yes, very true. 
but it goes to show you how important your job is, is to make sure everything is compliant, everything's documented. Yes. And, you know, I started doing this about two and a half years ago. And when I started it, it was hard to sell compliance because there was no education out there that compliance was even an, an important aspect of owning, you know, a med spa. Every medical facility, whether it's a doctor's office or a hospital, they have some sort of compliance. And in the same aspect, you know, medical spas have to have that as well. And so now there's more talk about it, you know, just in the industry itself. But I have a lot more people coming and buying, you know, compliance and, you know, hey, I didn't even know this was a thing or, hey, I'm about to open in two weeks and I didn't know I had to have this. But my injector friend that owns a med spa told me and, you know, there's there's that that sense of panic, you know, um, to get those things in place so that they can be compliant. Are there any stories that you uh, that might give some examples of for people that are already maybe started their practice or maybe they're, they're about to start their, their uh, practice? I did work with a client in the South Lake area that was actually subpoenaed by the Texas Medical Board. And that case we worked on for eight or nine months. But what had happened was her subpoena said that she was practicing without a medical license. And so they required us to send documentations of her, you know, all her records in her EMR system and she had switched EMR systems. And so it was, it was a tedious process to say um, the least, but fortunately didn't get into too much trouble. Come to find out there was just some hard feelings between the uh, medical director and the client. And so, you know, the medical director said, you know, so-and-so is doing this and they shouldn't be. And it turned out to be, you know, for my client, you know, a good situation um, once it was over because she didn't get fined. She didn't get anything. She basically, they told her, you know, you're doing everything right. Your compliance is in place. They checked that. So yeah, she didn't get fined or anything. And she had just did compliance with us probably three or four months prior to, to getting subpoenaed. So they did check that. They did check her compliance. So yeah. So I'd hate to see what happened if she didn't have compliance in place. Yeah, that's really true. And some of the stuff that I've seen just from like the medical board is I, you know, basically if you don't have your stuff in order, I've seen people have charges of um, essentially practicing medicine without a license, which is a felony. That's what they came and told her, you're practicing medicine without a license. And, you know, so then that's when they started checking different things. They were asking questions and, you know, we were able to, because she was working um, with me as her consultant um, and we were able to make sure all her ducks were in a row and, you know, it turned out, it turned out well. So we were pretty happy in the end. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. And it goes to show you the power of having all that stuff documented and ready to go because at any at any time, you, you know, one of either somebody doesn't, you know, it could be one of your employees doesn't like you, a competitor is angry at you, and then they, they file a report on you. <laughs> now you got to have everything. You're absolutely right because I've heard of secret shoppers, you know, coming into, you know, a, a competitor's spa and you just, you just never know what's going to happen. It's better to be safe than sorry, you know. You're already spending a lot of money by having a business and to have those fines on top of all the expenses you already have as a business owner can be detrimental. So, And are there any tips that you might give someone who's maybe they're already up and practicing, uh, they're watching this video and they just realize, oh man, I think I'm in compliance, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, absolutely. I would you know, always offer my services if you want me to overlook your compliance and then you're not local to the DFW area. You know, we can set up a discovery call and I can check your compliance for you um, via Zoom. Um, if you are local, I'm more than happy to set up something and come into your office to give you a quick overview of, you know, hey, everything looks good. 
or you're missing quite a bit. And it's some cases we can, you know, pop things in for people. In some cases, it's like, this is pretty old. Let's, let's start new. And so it can go either way. For the average, you know, person who's practicing, you know, aesthetics, is there any, like, I guess, how many regulatory bodies are essentially watching them or, you know, basically making sure they're in compliance? It would be uh, Texas Medical Board always. And then TDLR, if you've got the components of you're doing chemical pills, facials, and laser hair removal. So that's, um, you know, that would be TDLR. And then your OSHA for any any business and then your HIPAA compliance. So those okay. are your, your your four governing entities that were, they're overlooking to make sure that you're in compliance. And so for the people that are maybe not in Texas, basically it's their medical board. They may have like some kind of board that's related to cosmetology. Is that mm-hmm. kind of what TDLs are? And then yes. uh, they also have the OSHA and then in HIPAA, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. For the most part, those are OSHA and HIPAA are pretty universal from what I've seen. I'm, I'm kind of dabbling in some California compliance and Oklahoma, and it seems to be that all, all of that's pretty universal. So at least four, at least four different governing bodies over watching your practice, you know? Yeah. Good to know. And then would you say that most of the time when clients or, you know, people that you know get into some kind of trouble, is the cause like an anonymous report? Is it something they did? Is it a patient? Most of the time, it's honestly those secret shoppers. So those competitors that you move in that are not happy that you're offering some of the same services. It could be a competitor on social media that, oh, she said that. And I know she can't say that. And I'm not happy that, you know, she's competing with me. And so he or she. And so they they turn them in anonymously. So, yeah, more wow. more anonymous, but your competitors for sure. Man, that is crazy. The penalties for these things, you know, are... Can, can be anything from mild to severe. Could you maybe talk about like what could go wrong if you're not compliant? The most extreme um, would be to lose your license. You know, you go to school for all these years to, you know, get your license. And then once it's gone, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's gone and there's your livelihood. But I think also, you know, your business being shut down, um, you know, that's your livelihood. And so that, that can be pretty scary. Um, and then just hefty fines, you know, depending on who's um, coming in to do the, the audits, you know, whether it's Texas Medical Board or whatever, they all have their own fines and fees that they, that they will implement. And then do you find that um, most of the people that are practicing or using your services, are they, you know, physicians, are they nurses, nurse practitioners? The majority of them are RNs. They've come from the hospital setting and they're just kind of, you know, burned out on that, um, you know, unfortunately. I feel like um, COVID changed a lot of things. And so we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are that are RNs starting their own business. And um, there are some nurse practitioners in that, um, in that room as well. I think there's going to be more of that because from what I see, mainstream medicine already has a lot of problems. But if you look at it, it's the only industry that we've seen essentially reimbursement cuts for the last 30 years. Right. And yeah. I can tell you personally, like like in, in specialties that I work in, you would get paid more for doing a procedure in 1991 than you do today. Yet the the power of your dollar is so much weaker, you know? So it's like the reimbursements keep going down. The amount of paperwork keeps going up. The stress level keeps going up. More patients, more patients, you know? And uh, it just comes to a point where it just, you know, eats you alive. And I think that's why so many people are... are and we encourage people to escape mainstream medicine by starting their own thing, even if it's just part. Could you maybe answer like if someone is, it's, you know, kind of like maybe they're just, they're still at the hospital, 
but they're trying to escape the the mainstream medicine rat race. So they want to do some like mobile Botox, you know, as an easy way to kind of get their foot, you know, out, you know, get their foot in the door, so to speak, and start to build a client base. Um, what would someone like that need to have in order to be compliant? So they definitely need mobile compliance. Um, they will need a certification from um, the, you know, obviously whatever they're doing in office. Um, if they're doing anything with TDLR, they're going to have to have a certification from them. Texas Medical Board does not require anything. Um, however, they do require that even if you're offering mobile services, there has to be that component of the privacy. So, you know, lots of people will do um, Botox parties or IV, you know, mobile IV. There's, you know, been many cases that I've read about where people are getting in trouble with that because there's no patient privacy. Everybody's in the room and you're talking about, you know, medical, um, the medical history of each patient in front of, you know, all the people there. So if you're doing that, make sure that you're, you know, making it, keeping in mind, you know, you treat them like you do in your, in your practice, closed doors, um, them only, and just, you know, being mindful that there's other people listening. Absolutely. And then what about, uh, I guess, for example, people that are doing, you know, kind of thing, like I've heard about people trying to start their own kind of practice in their house, like their own personal home. I'm not quite sure how they do that, how they get around that. I've, I've yet to figure that out because I know in working with the suppliers, you know, Allergan, Galderma, you know, MERS, all of them require that um, your ship to address be a business address. And they actually check that when they open your account. So how they're getting around that, I'm not quite sure. I don't personally think that it's a great idea, but I know that there are people doing it. For sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't actually think it's legal because my understanding is that they have to be working in a place that's zone medical, you know, unless yes, you're doing a mobile a, service, you know? Right. Yeah. It has to be set up just like a medical office. And most of the time um, it's not. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything that uh, kind of everyone in the industry uh, should be doing uh, that they're not doing? I mean, definitely making sure everything um, on the legal aspect is buttoned up in your clinic, making sure, you know, obviously your compliance is there. And if it's not reaching out to me or finding somebody that can do your compliance for you, you can do it on your own. You definitely can. I have talked to many people that have done it on their own. In fact, I've talked to a big injector in the South Lake area. She said that it took her anywhere from eight to 10 months to kind of get everything together. So Fortunately, I already have a database built. So when you come to me, I, I have a lot of the protocols and things already for things in the industry. So I can get them you know, to you pretty quickly. And then is there anything that people are not doing now, but they should be doing to make sure that they're going to be okay with legal aspects? Now that people are understanding that they need compliance in place, I think just understanding once that's in place, what are the responsibilities around that? So I outline that for my clients and tell them, okay, this is what the medical directors um, responsible for and just kind of walk them through that, um, make sure that they have all of those forms in their, in their compliance binders and just making sure they're keeping up with that because I do read the Texas Medical Board website, you know, pretty often. And I know some of the cases where doctors licenses are suspended and things like that. It's because they're not signing, they're not signing off on 10% of their charts. They're not doing their monthly meetings or they've never even step foot inside the clinic that they're overseeing. So definitely making sure those things are in order. And then do you feel it's wise for, for medical directors to have some form of training or certification? Because it seems like Absolutely. most of them. Oh, thank you. 
It's actually the law. And so um, the Texas Amendment, it's 193.17, I believe, states that the medical director um, has to have basic knowledge and training in everything that they're overseeing for a clinic. This is something that I feel is a, an issue in the industry because not all medical directors are doing that. Um, I would say at least 90% of medical directors don't even have any kind of training. I've worked with clients. They're like, no, I need one that knows this, this, and this, and they can't find one. And so I definitely think that's an issue that, you know, needs to be worked out. What about, I guess, one thing I, I saw a lot of was essentially kind of, you see kind of a setup where there's maybe a clinic owner uh, who's usually not medical, and then they have, you know, a nurse or a nurse practitioner, and they, they have a medical director that's essentially offsite. What do you say about having the clinic owner trying to direct the RNs and APRNs, and, and how might someone deal with that or make that, you know, uh, legal, I guess? So definitely the standing orders have to be in place for each provider. I've worked with clinics that have nurse practitioners that are, you know, very experienced in, in the field that they were previously in. And then they come over to aesthetics and they're like, oh, no, I can delegate. And I'm like, actually, you can't because the law states that the delegation has to come from a, a, a doctor, like somebody that holds, you know, an MD license um, or DO license. So making sure your standing orders are in place for each provider, each provider. So your esthetician, if she's offering any medical services, he or she, sorry, if they're offering any medical services, those have to be on the standing orders and things like that, you know, microneedling, medical grade chemical pills, those kind of things. And then, you know, it also goes down to your, your RNs and your nurse practitioners um, have to have uh, prescriptive authority in place. So I've been in many, many clinics where they don't have even um, anything for for standing orders, prescriptive authority, nothing. So it's just, I don't think it's just well known in the industry still. And this is a, a great piece of advice. So basically anybody who is not able, essentially besides a doctor, you essentially need to have a standing order for every procedure and every single uh, person that is going to do that procedure. Is that right? Yes. And so um, I offer templates inside of the compliance that I do, and it um, has appropriate spots for all of that to be charted. So anything, anything medical falls under the medical directorship for that clinic gotcha. and has to be noted. Yeah. This happens a lot where we see people that are maybe not medically trained, but they're doing, you know, or they, they want to do, or they, they're trying to do medical procedures. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything in particular that you've uh, come across regarding that? So, yes, actually, um, there's a lot of estheticians that are doing IV therapy, you know, like the story we talked about earlier, they have to be IV certified and it's up to the medical director to, to delegate that to them. I think that in reading what the Texas Medical Board, the rules and regulations around that, I think they kind of leave it up to the, the medical director to make those decisions if that's something they want to do, because ultimately it's their license on the line. So a lot of medical directors that I know, if it's not an RN, if it's not an NP, they will not delegate those kind of things. So for the most part, you have some, you know, pretty ethical medical directors, but you're going to find your cases where they're not so ethical and they, you know, just, you know, sign off on anything, delegate and, and those kind of things. So. And do you feel that, you know, one of the things I, I hear a lot of is like people say, oh, I need to, I need to borrow your license, you know, for my practice, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. you know, every time I hear that, I kind of laugh because it's like, if something bad happens, you know, to a patient, 
that medical director is going to get like he's going to get in the lawsuit. He's going to be drugged to the medical board. Like it's not like you're going to be like scot free. And I think a lot of people don't realize that just being a medical director in, inherently has some kind of risk or liability, uh, especially if you don't have your <laughs> things documented properly. Yes, absolutely. And that's why as you know, time passes and the seasoned medical directors, they start raising their prices because they understand, you know, once they've got their feet wet and, you know, have dealt with, you know, cases and things like that, they understand the importance of their license and putting it on the line for these, you know, these clinics. And so they raise their medical director fees because it's their license. So in the end, everything falls back on the medical director's Yes, you know, your esthetician or your RN might get a smack on the hand and a, and a fine, but ultimately your medical director is the one that, you know, is going to get the majority of whatever, you know, fined or license suspended or whatever. One of the things I also see a lot of is people saying, you know, like there's been times where I've seen people that have medical directors that essentially they're not paying or they try to do some kind of, you know, fee splitting stuff where it's like, oh, well, as soon as I make profit, then I'll give you a percentage of my profits. You maybe talk about like, you know, the proper way to set up your relationship with a medical director that's, you know, would be considered compliant. So Texas is definitely a CPOM state. So what that means is that the money that comes into your business has to funnel in and out a certain way. And I really can't speak on that just because it's a lot of legal jargon, but also your MSO, MSA has to be set up. So with Texas being a CPOM state, technically an RN or an MP cannot own a medical facility. So the law states that they, uh, the doctor owns 51% and then the rest goes to the, the owner, the other owner in the partnership. But there is a workaround to that. Again, it's the MSO, MSA. I can't speak a lot on, on that just because I've had it explained to me by Bertadotto, who's a pretty big uh, lawyer. They're pretty big in the industry, they know, you know, their stuff. So I've actually asked them and they've explained it to me. And I still, I'm like, you know what, I'm not even going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. So I always, you know, refer to, you know, talking to a lawyer or making sure, you know, those things are set up, but definitely that is the law and that, that is what it states. Now I get a lot of clients that are like, oh gosh, what if they change the law or what if they crack down on this? And, you know, my personal feedback on that is, Hey, do you remember like, you know, 20 years back, I don't know, maybe it was 15, but when hospitals no longer allowed LVNs to work, if you weren't an RN, you, you know, the LVNs had two years to go back and get their certification. And if they didn't, they wouldn't have a job. And so I feel like, you know, I don't feel like they're going to come in and, you know, definitely, you know, just shut everybody down. Um, I think that would be detrimental for the economy. So I do think there's going to be, you know, some maybe grandfathering of things or something putting to place where, you know, they say, hey, you know, we know that the majority of people are doing this, but you have until this time to get it right. So that's just kind of my personal take on, you know, what I've seen and questions and networking and stuff that I've done with people in the industry. I, you know, that's just my take on it. So well, I think you have a really good point because a lot of people are not set up legally right. You know, the corporate practice of medicine states, I think there's a few how many there are, but it's like a large number of the states in the US are corporate practice of medicine. I which think is it's just like a 26 or 24 something yeah yeah it's pretty pretty significant you know and what i what i always find interesting is that people don't realize like what that really means is that you need to have some form of corporation that is ideally owned by a physician or a physician company where a physician independent on the state has at least 51% ownership of the corporation 
And that's where your money flows in for patient care. Once it flows into that company, then you can set, then you can move that money to wherever you want to. You could go to a staffing company that you offer staffing services to. If you have an MSO, uh, a master service organization where you have a contract with that and you say, Hey, we're going to do all your management for you. Um, and we're going to manage all the, the stuff for you. And you don't, you know, which is quite common for, for physicians to have. Then, then, you know, you can do that, but it has to, you know, you have to be legal and, and watch those money flows because if you're not careful, you can get into a lot of trouble real fast. And then it causes a lot of damage, you know, to something that you're built. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about, you know, that I think that it's better to have, you know, especially with these nurses that are building a business and they want to do this long term, it's better to build your foundation correctly than to have to backtrack and untangle things. It just makes more sense to do things right in the beginning. You know, you always tell your kids do it right once or you're going to have to do it again, you know, in the same sense goes for your business as well. Yeah, so true. Yeah. And then um, just out of curiosity with, with your, you know, because you've been working in this industry for a long time, it seems to me, and it's just, just as an outsider perspective, like it seems like there's kind of waves of compliance that occur. So then you're kind of like people are, it's like a free for all. Everybody's doing weird stuff and people are like, hey, you shouldn't do that. But oh, my friend did this and nothing happened to them. And then something will happen, like, like you mentioned that event in Frisco. And then everybody is, is like under crackdown, you know? So I would say, don't do, you know, again, going back to what we tell our kids, don't do what everybody's doing because it doesn't mean that it's right. Just because, you know, 90% of the med spas, you know, are offering a service that you've heard, you know, some talk about that may not be, you know, the thing they should be doing. So I can talk about, you know, semi-glutide, for example, you know, there was some commotion around that and talking to my legal team. They talked about, you know, advertising it appropriately, using the correct name, not the na brand name if it's compounded, those kind of things. But also there is no, no other RN ran clinics in the U.S. besides med spas. And so going back to, you know, they technically, you just have to be careful. I'll, I'll just say that you have to be careful just because, you know, an RN clinic down the street is offering semi-glutide doesn't mean that you should be doing it. And if you are, you really need to make sure that you have your ducks in a row, your emergency protocols, those kind of things. Because with the, I guess, with the wave of that being the trend of what, you know, weight loss is right now, I've heard of, you know, some stories of people not taking care of themselves being on those medications and, and whatnot. So yeah, it can be, it can be pretty scary. And then one of the things that I run into a lot is I don't think people have a lot of clarity around like the, the initial history and physical or the like, cause you know, and for, for most medical spas, you need to have like, um, a, ideally like a history and physical on the patient once a year. You right. just like review all their medications, make sure nothing's changed, make sure they don't have any diagnosis, you know, that, that you weren't aware of. Mm -hmm. And, and usually that's done by, you know, a physician or a nurse practitioner. Right. And then the, then on the history and physical, they give a diagnosis and that diagnosis is what activates the standing order. And so maybe could you talk about how someone who's maybe starting their own practice, how can they make sure that they're always in compliance by using that model? Or is there something that you're seeing that people are not doing right? This comes up a lot. Um, as a provider, you're supposed to do a good faith exam and it's good for 12 months, but you also need to be very mindful that your patient you haven't seen in a couple of months, you need to be asking those things. So has anything changed in your medical history? And not just that question, but going a little more in depth of like, 
do we add any new medications and not just asking the question, but actually going through the list and saying, you know, this is what I have because they don't remember what they put on the, on the list two or three months ago, those kind of things, but just being proactive so that you don't have to be reactive when, you know, something happens if something were to happen. And then uh, would you mind talking a little about the documentation that's required to stay in compliance? Because I find, especially with some of the people that maybe they're not in the medical industry, but now they're working in a med spa, so they might be like an esthetician. You know, before the esthetician got involved with medical services, their documentation mm-hmm. for a facial really didn't really ever happen. It was essentially appointment in the calendar and that's it, you know? <laughs> right, right. So definitely as a um, owner, if you have staff you and you're bringing in an esthetician and she's going to start providing medical services, you as her person, you need to make sure that you're educating them on that piece. And this is conversations that I have pretty often. Nurses, they feel like, I don't know that I'm charting, you know, right. And so what I've kind of talked about with others in the community is overchart. You can never chart too much. I mean, you obviously have to be mindful of your time as a provider, but making sure that, you know, because basically if it's not written and it's not in the chart, it didn't happen. And so, you know, covering your rear end, basically, you know, you don't want it, it, it to come down to, you know, losing your license or getting, you know, suspended or something like that. So just charting, charting, charting as much as you can, making sure you're doing that when it happens, because I know that I've worked with clinics that they'll jot down, you know, notes in their phone or whatever the provider, and then they try to go back and they forget. And so doing that daily, like you've got to do it at the end of the day, if you're not doing it, um, if you don't have time to do it after each client, making sure you're doing that. So, yeah. Well, that's a really good point. And I think you make a really good point there because I feel like people in aesthetics, for whatever reason, just because the environment's different than a normal clinic, it's like all the stuff they learn just goes out the window. It's like, <laughs> you know, in mainstream medicine, you're going to do a procedure note. You're going to have a diagnosis. You're going to have the name of the procedure. You're going to have a consent. You're going to explain mm-hmm. what you did. You're going to explain what happened after what after you did the procedure, like the patient going home, they're staying in the hospital, what's, you know, disposition, like where they, what's going on. And they'll have an aesthetic procedure that, you know, maybe is arguably less complicated, but they'll have like a, a picture of someone's face with some, you know, number of, of units written, but no detail as to was the patient prepped? Was it, you know, how did it go? Was there any complications? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing. Yes. And, you know, that brings kind of back to memory. I talked to somebody that had a reaction to a numbing cream, but when they went back to see what they had used, they had two different numbing creams in in the office and it wasn't written down to which one was used. So they really didn't know what the reaction was from. They knew it was probably from the numbing cream, but down to what you're cleaning their skin with, the numbing cream you're using, all those products you're putting on their face, listing all of that out is so, so important. That was really that was a great point because I think that definitely is an area that we all need to improve on in, in the aesthetics uh, industry too. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Amber, what would you say is like, you know, some of the most frequently asked questions that the people approach you with? So the one that I get the most is, hey, I see that they're trying to pass a law where only nurse practitioners can inject and I'm an RN, like, am I going to have to close my clinic? And what I say is, hey, that's come, it's not the first time, you know, it's been over 10 to 15 years that that has been brought before the board for nurse practitioners to inject in Texas and no longer are in. So, um, you know, I tell them again, it goes back to that. 
I feel like there's going to be a grace period there if that you know does happen. I think there are some other things they need to focus on in the industry, in my opinion, rather than those things because RNs make great injectors, and so I don't feel like it needs to go to that level where it's only for nurse practitioners. Of course, that's my opinion, but you'll have a grace period if those things do come into play. You know, the law is going to say, okay, you've got a year, two years, whatever to to obtain that, or you can't um, or inject or whatever. I totally agree with you. I think RNs do make great injectors. And I think that there might be, you know, questionably, I'm going to say questionably, they might need a little bit more help kind of getting started, you know, because perhaps as an APRN, they had more, you know, advanced practice nurse may have more ex- experience doing procedures and being more independent, that kind of thing. But even there's some APRNs that, that don't have experience with that. So kind of what I've, I've found is just, you know, even when we train a lot of students, I've been quite surprised that I don't find it's the degree that really like makes them uh, a certain way, but it's their passion. Because I would pick somebody any day of the week that is passionate and really wants to do a good job and wants to learn and is, is watching videos on the internet and they're, reviewing their training and like that person will become a great injector. The person that, you know, maybe is cocky and they think they know how to do everything already. That person usually doesn't do well, you know? Yeah. I definitely think you have to be coachable coming into this brand new, even though you've may have been, you know, I see nurse for 15, 20 years. You've, you've got to be open to the idea of being coachable because what I've seen that's hard for providers to do is when they come from the medical setting, such as a hospital or a doctor's office, they have a kind of a hard time turning off that setting in their brain where, you know, now it's the aesthetic side. And so it, things are just, they're, they're still medical, but they're different. Your clients are there because they want to be there. They're not there because they're sick. Um, so it's, it's more, it's definitely a more enjo- enjoyable field, I would say. Oh, hundred percent. I think it's a little more enjoyable. And then I feel like the patients are happier and I just remember, um, you know, one time I was, I, I was, it was Jennifer, uh, my wife was doing uh, procedures for our aesthetics practice. And I was at the hospital doing uh, procedures kind of for our mainstream medicine practice, you know. And I remember I worked so hard on these procedures. And, you know, like I think I worked on this one case, it was like three hours in the OR. And I got exposed to a ton of radiation. I'd take like a week off from, from any x ray because of all the radiation. And at the end of the day, the guy's like, oh, yeah, thanks. See you later. You know, and that's kind of what I expected. And then she did, you know, I think it was like a Botox and, and filler treatment. And the patient was like in tears, like in jo- tears of joy, like how happy everything was and like gave her a gift and all this stuff. And I thought, man, what a difference in the way, you know, it's like, you know, relatively the risk level is so much higher for, for what you call mainstream medicine. Your payback and reimbursement is, a, you know, a joke, basically. And then you have the aesthetics practice where the patients actually want to be there. They're paying you with, you know, good money. That's not, you know, it's not devalued by, you know, constant cuts that happen. And then they're, they're so grateful for the procedures. And there's nothing like that. I agree 100%. I've been in the medical industry since I was in college and I've always done, you know, something medical. And I moved here about seven years ago to the DFW area and I wanted to work for a plastic surgeon. I applied. They put me in med spa. I didn't know anything about it, but I came, I became very passionate about it pretty quickly. I was afraid of what, you know, my friends and family were going to think because you think when you're, you're not educated about the services that a med spa offers, it can seem a little vain. So I was worried about like what everybody would think. 
But then I quickly learned, you know, with a plastic surgeon doing facelifts, nose jobs, you know, breast lifts, those kind of things, like it's, it's life-changing. And then people start to take care of other things, you know, their, their skin, they go hand in hand. And so I definitely have become very passionate about it because it is life-changing. These services are definitely life-changing. You're 100% right about that. I remember there was a case where a lady came in for treatment and it was just, I think it was, you know, a combination treatment, like some filler, some neuromodulator, that kind of thing. And at the end, she was so happy she started crying. And, mm -hmm. and I asked her, like, why are you crying? You know, she was very happy with the results, but she said, for the first time in my life, I'm the pretty sister because apparently <laughs> all her life she'd had another sister and that one was the pretty one. And uh -huh. so for whatever reason, now she, was the could see herself as the pretty sister and it was like a a self-realization that she had that she was worthy enough to have praise and adoration and to be beautiful that's amazing you can you can do all sorts of stuff to, to people you can put in pacemakers you can you know i'm not saying i'm not trying to downplay any stuff we do in mainstream medicine but there is nothing that i've seen in mainstream medicine that makes an effect like that absolutely you know? yeah yeah that's why i will never do anything else <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you have a really great point. And then um, is there anything that you do regarding that? Yes. So I definitely coach them through that needs to be part of their compliance that they have. Every medical director should have an emergency protocol. If they don't have an emergency protocol, you definitely need, you need to get one in place because you never know. It, just because it hasn't happened to you doesn't mean that it's not going to. You know, I've heard of injectors that have been injecting for years, never had a vascular occlusion, anything like that. And, you know, it happens and then they don't have Hylonex in their office or they don't have these emergency protocols. And so they're panicked and, you know, time is of the essence when vascular occlusions happen. And so you need to be able to review those things, have in mind on how they work. And so that when things like that do happen, you're like, oh, I know exactly what to do. So definitely working with your medical director to make sure you understand what their emergency protocol is. And if they aren't available for some reason, because most of them have primary jobs that you have a backup physician that you can reach out to a partner of some sort. That's really true. And do you feel that um, it's wise for most people that are kind of starting their own practice? Like a lot of people are almost intimidated to ask other people for help. Do you feel that it's like you know, really that intimidating or do you think they should reach out more and build these kind of relationships? So I've seen both. Um, when I first started, I feel like it was a little more competitive than it is now. It's more saturated now with injectors, the area that we live in. But I think there are more people that are more injectors that are, you know, happy to help if you were re to reach out to them. You know, I think it's just a matter of like finding your people, finding your network and, you know, really utilizing them to your advantage as a provider. You know, there's Facebook groups. I know some nurses that have WhatsApp, you know, a WhatsApp group and, you know, they communicate that way, bounce ideas off of each other. But yeah, just definitely doing something like that. All right. So Amber, um, has there been any kind of new developments that you've seen uh, happen in the industry? Um, So not really any new developments, but just something that has, it's kind of those waves that you talked about, you know, somebody says or finds out something and it just kind of, you know, goes through the industry. Some people know about this and some people don't, but if you have a, if you offer laser hair removal, you have to have a second medical director. And I know this hits some people the wrong way. I post about it and I 
you know, there's people that want to argue and stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I didn't make the law. I'm just sharing it. I'm educating it. I'm letting, educating you, letting you know, you know, that this is what the law states. And I have had, I have went to a lawyer and had it interpreted and they came back and said, yes, that's definitely what it says. So basically you have your primary medical director that oversees all of your medical services. So when we talk about medical services, it's anything that breaks the skin. So microneedling, IV therapy, obviously your injectables. But when we talk about laser hair removal, that is that is governed by um, TDLR. And they do require that not only your second medical director be 75 within a 75 mile radius, but they also um, require you to have a second medical director. And it clearly states on their TDLR website that um, it cannot be the same as your primary physician. So if you want to go to TDLR and find where that information is, you can search um, laser hair removal at a glance is a good one. And it pulls up, it actually pulls up a document you can download and read on there. Um, there's another one that is med spas at a glance. And I really like that one because it gives you a table and it breaks down who oversees what. So Texas Medical Board oversees this, Board of Nursing oversees this, TDL oversees this. And I think one of the um, governing entities that I did not mention was um, Texas Health and Human Services. So they do um, oversee laser as well. So it kind of falls under their umbrella. You know, again, don't shoot the messenger. I, I just, you know, want to educate and let people know that this is, this is what happens uh, or this is what needs to happen. You have to have that second medical director. A lot of people don't want to hear that because then they have to pay a second medical director fee. They already are kind of like, gosh, I pay my, my, my primary medical director and I don't ever see him. He doesn't do a whole lot. And now you're telling me you have to pay another one. And so, you know, there's, there's that, but definitely, yes, you have to have one. So. And I think that's really, that's a really great point and definitely a gem, you know, a pearl that you shared there. But it goes to show you just once again, there's so many different governing bodies that are over you and they're over their rules, like can overlap or be separate. It's like that, you know? <laughs> yes. Great. Yes. And I'm continuously learning like all these things, like, you know, just as soon as I, I feel like, Hey, I am definitely an expert in this. You know, there's something else that I'm, I'm learning the industry's, you know, always changing. Things are always you know, rules, regulations are being updated constantly. And so I do my very best to provide, you know, the latest and greatest to my, to my clients um, when it comes to compliance. So then basically if you're a med spa and they're in the med spa decides to work with you, then basically you're also making sure and like updating them about any changes that are occurring because it seems like changes occur like so rapidly. Yes. Um, so it is a service that I offer. You can, you know, package and bundle some things together. Um, and if that's one of the services you want to do, I do, I offer, you know, keeping you compliant for six months or keeping you compliant for the year. And so I give a discount if you bundle that together, when you purchase compliance from me, you know, I just basically, I, if you're not local and I can't come in and do it myself, I'll email you the document and tell you where to put it in your compliance and just pop it in there and you're good to go. Well, that's awesome. Uh, any other uh, things you want to share? I think we hit pretty much everything. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Amber. We really appreciate yeah. it and sharing your expertise. And if somebody Absolutely. wants to find out more of uh, you know, how they can get in compliance and reach out to you, uh, where should they go? So info at aestheticbc.com is my email. Aesthetic Business Consulting is my Instagram handle. And so you can text me also. I can give you my phone number, 817-629-2188. 
and I'll be happy to help. We can set up a, a discovery call and kind of talk about what you're, um, what you're needing and go from there. All right, perfect. Thank you for listening. As medical entrepreneurs, we have a saying, one vision, one purpose, freedom through prosperity. If you're ready to follow your destiny and break free of the mainstream medical system, join us at freedomthroughprosperity.com. See you next week.